So this is the last lesson in this series, lesson number nine on the book of Job, Faithful Living in Times of Crisis. And uh, the title of this lesson is A Christian's Response to Death and Dying. Kind of apropos uh, after the uh, prayer requests that we've had, very sad for uh, several families that are, uh, that are going through uh, with the, um, or experiencing the death of a loved one. Uh, and of course with COVID, uh, we get a lot of those type of prayer requests because many people um, have lost loved ones. Uh, everybody remember who she is? In 1969, speaking of death and dying, in 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, wrote a groundbreaking book on the subject of death and dying. And uh, what was unusual about it, what was groundbreaking about it, is that she noted a pattern of behavior that dying patients exhibited as they approached death from a terminal illness or, or they were grieving the death of a loved one. And she noticed that there were many things similar. In other words, people reacted to death in a similar way, regardless of who they were, their age, their socioeconomic situation, didn't matter when it came to themselves dying or someone else close to them who, uh, who was dying, uh, they, they kind of reacted in a uh, same way. And her five stages of grieving based on that book have become famous and often repeated in teaching people how to cope with you know, uh, serious illness and death. Just in case uh, you're not familiar with these, the five stages in the grieving process, shock or denial, stage one, she wrote about, stage two, anger, stage three, bargaining, stage four, depression, stage five, acceptance. Now Kubler-Ross um, taught that people didn't necessarily graduate from one stage to another. A lot of people mistakenly think something bad happens, you, know, you lose uh, someone that you love, a spouse, a parent, someone dies suddenly and there's shock and then shock is followed by anger, and then that's followed by bargaining. You know, if only I was there, if only I would have done this, you know, that's bargaining, followed by depression. Oh my, what am I going to do now? I've lost my husband, I've lost my wife, whatever. And then finally, acceptance. You know, there's, you accept the new reality that I you know, I am a person that does not have a spouse anymore. My life is not better, my life is not necessarily worse, but my life is surely different. You know, that's acceptance. So people mistakenly uh, think that you just go from one to the other until you get to acceptance. But we found out that that is not exactly the way things work. They work more in a cyclical fashion. For example, shock uh, would be followed by anger. Uh, and then a bout of depression. And then there would come you know, a measure of acceptance. 
after which a person would revert back to bargaining with God for more time, you know, in case of terminal illness. And so the idea is that people tend to zigzag from one of these stages to another for various amounts of time until hopefully they will remain in the acceptance mode for longer and longer periods of time. I kind of compare this to a roulette. You know, if you look at movies, because uh, I know none of you have ever been to a casino, uh, uh, you look at movies and they have the, the roulette game, you know, and the wheel uh, goes around and the little ball, you know, the, the croupier, whoever he is, he throws a little ball in, you know, and the ball is bouncing and it's in, uh, you know, red four and it bounces to black six and it bounces to, you know, bounces and it keeps bouncing around till eventually it, it finds one place and it just stays there. Well, uh, these stages of grieving work like that. You're in shock and then, uh, then you go to bargaining for a while. You pray, oh God, if you give me just one more month till my daughter gets married, I just want to live that much longer. You, know, you bargain and, and then you've, you fall into depression for a time. And then you kind of accept your, your situation. Yeah, I think I can, I think I can deal with this. You know, and then you go back to being angry again. And the idea is that you keep bouncing around from stage to stage until hopefully you end up at acceptance and you stay in acceptance. And as I said, the idea of acceptance is not, oh, I have this whole new wonderful life or, oh, I have this terrible life. No, the idea of acceptance is I now have a different life. Like the guy who loses his arm you know, in, a, in, a, in an accident. He now, he's still the same guy, except now he's a guy with only one arm. That's acceptance. There are just some things I won't be able to do anymore because I'm a man that only has one arm. So this is the primary model. If you ever go to a group, uh, you know, a support group or something to try to help you deal with certain issues, <clears throat> this, is, this is pretty much the model many of these are going to use to help you deal with your reaction to uh, death or suffering uh, uh, in your own life or in your family. Now, Kubler-Ross, the one who wrote this book, she was not a Christian. And in later years, she saw herself as a sort of a medium, able to contact people in the spirit world, you know, because she was famous because of the book and she kind of began to delve in this type of mysticism. And much of her later writings were not taken very seriously for this particular reason. Now I mentioned this about her because it confirms in my own mind the fact that she did not use the Bible as a model for her death and dying theories. If she would have done so, she would have discovered a similar model to the one she observed in people. However, she would have discovered a much more complete and satisfying response to death and dying. And that is the response of a believer to death and dying is different than what she wrote about. Very different. So as a human being, a believer's response to his or her own terminal illness or the death of a loved one is the same as any other person's response. However, because of their faith in God, because of their trust in Christ, 
that response goes beyond the mere five steps that Kubler-Ross described. Now, if we had to examine one person in the Bible who experienced both the threat of terminal illness and the death of loved ones simultaneously, it would be, of course, Job, the character that we have been uh, studying the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Job. You know, we've already done seven or eight weeks, but we know his story. He was uh, wealthy, well-respected in his community for his goodness and wisdom and piety. He had a large family of sons and daughters. God permitted Satan to test him in order to see if he would be faithful in trial as he had been in abundance. Satan therefore caused Job to lose his wealth, his children who were all killed at once, his reputation and ultimately his health. Uh, it seemed that he had a terminal illness. He also lost the love and the support of his wife and then his friends. And so after all of these things had happened to Job, we read that he did not respond like ordinary people respond. In other words, he did not act like the people that Kubler-Ross described in her book. He responded differently than most folks would in a similar situation. Because in a similar situation, let's face it, most people would go into denial and shock not wanting to accept the reality of the terrible things that had just taken place. Imagine losing all your wealth, you know, your business and everything, and all your children all in the same, you know, all in the same day. Uh, someone uh, to whom these things would happen today uh, would try to put the events out of their minds as soon as possible, as soon as the funeral was over. You know, life goes on type thing. And I'm always amazed, I mentioned this before, at how quickly people begin to talk sports or light up a cigarette or start to gossip after the funeral service. Not a minute or two goes by. The final prayer is done you know, uh, at, at the graveside service. And people are in a hurry to get back to normal because it's all been abnormal. This dead body has been there in front of them uh, for uh, several hours and they've had to solemnly follow the casket in a car and watch the box with their loved one being lowered into the ground you know, in a conventional funeral and then prayers are made, prayers about dying, prayers about heaven, these type of things, a lot of crying and sadness. You know. They want all of that to stop. They want to get back to normal as soon as possible. You, you watch that. Next time you go to a funeral, you'll see uh, that particular thing happen. You know, as soon as the funeral's over, boom, people, you know, it's as if it didn't happen. They're such in a rush to get back to normal. And what that is actually is a form of denial. But I digress. It seems that uh, people want to get the grieving over with as soon as possible. They want to blame God perhaps or question God concerning their tragedy. Why now? Why this? Why me? Why them? Now I've said all of this to make a contrast. Believers, on the other hand, are not most people. 
Their way of dealing with death and dying is different because of the cross that is behind them, the spirit that is within them, and the future that is before them. An example of this is Job's response to the loss of his wealth and children and position all in the same day. In the book of Job chapter one, we see the five steps that this believer went through in his experience of death and dying. And I thought in the last lesson that we have on the book of Job, I, I wanted to compare Kubler-Ross's system of grieving, you know, death and dying, and the Bible's system of death and dying, uh, describing a believer who goes through this particular experience. So let's do that, shall we? The five steps that the believer went through, Job the believer went through in his experience of death and dying. Step number one, he mourned. He mourned. In Job chapter one, verse 20 a, it says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. Job immediately begins to lament the loss of his children as well as the other good things that he has enjoyed and now has lost. Note that he accepts as true the events that have befallen him. He tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls to the ground. These are all natural and human and at that time normal cultural responses to terrible events taking place. This is the natural, healthy way to deal with tragedy. It's called lamenting. It's called the mourning. You know, in some cultures, uh, people wear black for a year after you know, the passing of a loved one. And we think in the West, you know, we, we think this is silly or we think it's old fashioned, but actually it's a good way to separate oneself from a time, uh, for a time of reconstruction emotionally, reconstruction socially and spiritually dressing all in black says, don't mind me, I'm in mourning. I'm going through something. It, it, it's a signal to other people that I'm being put back together again. I, I remember my own dad, when his dad, like when my grandfather died, I remember my father wearing a black band. You know, I remember he had a gray suit and he had the black band at the funeral. And in those days, people wore a black tie or something like that. But anyways, he wore a black band. And I thought, you know, as a kid, he'd take it off. As soon as he got home, no, no, no. He wore that black band for months and months after my grandfather's funeral. It was a way of saying, I'm mourning. I've lost someone. I'm not me. Something has happened and I'm just not myself. It was a way to signal to other people to you know, give me some space, you know, understand, uh, try to understand what I'm going through. And of course, in the Italian community that my father lived in and that we were close to, uh, there were no need for explanations because everyone understood you know, 
what, was, what was taking place. The worst detriment to recovery from tragedy is to force a time limit for ourselves to get over it. Some people think they're helping others when they're saying to them, just get over it. You know, people die. What are you going to just get over it? You know, they, it's like you've, there's like a time limit on getting over uh, losing someone that you love, uh, losing a spouse uh, that you've, you've had your whole life with. We've had people in this church who've been married 60, 70 years. I mean, 80, it's, it's incredible. I mean, you just don't get over that in a, in a day, in a week. I don't think you actually ever get over it, so to speak. The worst thing that we can do is to try to force people to rush their mourning. If you don't weep, if you don't mourn when it happens, then you will weep and you will mourn later. I guarantee that. I guarantee it. Many depressions and anxieties are the result of improper time and effort given over to mourning and to lamenting the loss of a loved one, the loss of a marriage, the loss of good health, the loss of a family situation, the loss of an ability. You know who are the worst at this? Boys. Boys are the worst at morning. We don't teach them how to do it. We teach them exactly the opposite. I remember the night that my own father died. I mean, suddenly, you know, at supper time, he was fine. He was laughing and joking and this and that. And he went out and, and, and then, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, my mother woke me up and she said, daddy's sick, you know, something's wrong. So I went over and, and he was dying of a heart attack. You know, just like that from one day to the next. And, and so we call the cops. I remember in those days there was no 911. You know, you call the police, you know, and they took their time. And then the police came and they went, yep. Oh, yeah. Look serious. We better call an ambulance. <laughs> and so they called an ambulance, you know, to come and get the body. And, um, and they, they covered over, you know, they covered him over with a sheet and uh, they put him on the, the gurney and they, they were wheeling. And we lived in a small little apartment, you know, we were sitting there watching them do all of this, you know, and I was looking at my dad and I remember I started to cry. Well, you know, I was 15 years old. What are you going to do? I started to cry and I started to weep. And this big old cop uh, behind me, he put his hand on my shoulder all of a sudden. And he said to me, stop crying. You're the man now. You're the, you're the man in the house because I was an only child and it was just me and my mother. So don't cry, he said. And I didn't. <laughs> I didn't cry there. I didn't cry at the funeral. I didn't cry when they buried him. I didn't cry for 15 years. And I'm not unusual in that. Boys are, are taught to repress their feelings. Uh, they're taught that they mustn't show those things uh, many times. Uh, girls cry, sure, oh, they're girls. Here, you want a box of Kleenex? Go ahead, let's cry some more, you know? 
but boys, we don't let them do that. And that's the worst thing that we can do for boys. So getting back to Job, mourning was all Job could do at this point. And he did it as a way of saving his sanity. It's what God permits us to do. It's what God has hardwired us to do to save our sanity when things like this happen. And so in the believer's response to death and dying, step one, mourning, lamentation. Step number two, worship. Worship. In verse 20b it says, and he, meaning Job, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know he's, 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 he's uh, uh, externalizing his feelings, but he's doing it in a worshipful way. As a believer, once Job could struggle to right himself from the shock, his first thought is to go to God in worship and prayer. It is unfortunate that so many see prayer as a last hope, as a grasping at straws when things go bad, instead of worship. Uh, 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 tragedy leads many people instead to drink or to drugs or to excessive eating or abuse of themselves in various ways or all kinds of escapist methods to deal with the great pain associated with death and dying and suffering and loss and all of that. Of course, the verse here in Job does not contain all that he said. It doesn't repeat for us every prayer that was uttered. Rather, we are given the conclusion of his worship and talking to God. We read about the insight that he first gains as a result of his prayers. Initial prayer or worship does not always produce such deep insights into the nature of our situation, such clarity about its meaning. However, when the thought of existing one more minute on this earth is too painful to bear, the only place we can and should go to is God in humble worship, in prayer. You know, in my own life, there's prayer, which I do on a regular basis. I try to discipline myself to do it on a regular basis. And then there's prayer with me kneeling down. I don't always kneel down when I pray. But I guarantee you there are some times and there have been times in my life when kneeling down was the only way to pray because the burden was so heavy. If trouble, pain and death don't drive us to our knees, what will? You know, many times God uses tragedy as a means to draw us nearer to him than we ever have or could have been before. Our perhaps terminal illness 
or the death of a loved one is beyond our understanding. It's beyond our power. It is a supernatural thing that is at work in our lives. It's like being strapped into a roller coaster where we feel powerless to affect anything happening to us and our feelings. The, things about, the thing about a roller coaster is that, isn't it? They strap you in and you have no power. It just takes, it jerks you up, it takes you down, it spins you around and you scream and you yell. But at the back of your mind, you know this is going to be over in 38 seconds. But there are some situations in life that feel like a roller coaster, but the difference is you don't know when this roller coaster is going to stop. For this reason, we need to come closer to the one who does have the power to control all things, including death. This may not change the circumstances, but it does bring us peace. And at times it does bring us a certain understanding. Job did this and although his situation did not change, through his tears, he was rewarded with a crystal clear understanding of the true nature of his life and its ultimate meaning and substance. And so for the believer, the process, number one, mourning, realizing the terrible thing that has happened, whatever it is, and mourning over it. Two, prayer, prayer, devoted prayer. Number three, silence. Silence doesn't sound like a thing to do, but it's a very important thing to do. In verse 22, it says, through all this Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Although later on Job did break his silence, his first and his correct impulse was to hold his peace and contemplate his situation and wait upon the Lord. Here it's understood, he didn't sin, he didn't blame God, he didn't start talking. He didn't start whining. He didn't start blaming. The Bible explains this by saying that Job didn't complain to or blame God. He didn't charge God foolishly. He didn't question God as to the timing or the fairness or the degree of suffering. Who are we to, to, to question God about timing? Who are we to do that? He didn't dwell on the why of it all with the suggestion that there may have been a better way, an easier way, because many times when we say to God, why this? What we're really saying is, why did you choose this way instead of this other way? He did not substitute a plan of his own for what had happened that might have lessened the pain or the blow. He said nothing concerning the events and how they took place. The Bible says that in doing this, 
he sinned not. Kubler-Ross, she described the stages of grieving as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And we've come to see these as the normal human progressions and responses to death and dying. But we should also note that for a weak and sinful person, there, these may be normal responses. However, think about it now, to lash out at God in anger, to question his actions, to try and change his decisions, to feel sorry for ourselves because of what God has done to us. All of these things are fleshly, worldly responses born out of our sinful and weak natures. It's only because of God's goodness that he doesn't zap us where we sit. When we lash out at him in anger, again, who are we to lash out at him in anger? The only spiritual reaction is the final stage, the one of acceptance. Compare these, however, with Job's initial response to death and dying. He, he mourned and lamented his loss. And so we see that within his very first reaction is included most of Kubler-Ross's normal human responses of denial and anger and depression. All of that Job did as he mourned. And then he drew near to God in prayer and worship. He didn't bargain with God. He bowed down before God in humility and trust. I, I, I watched my son discipline his little boy the other night. Uh, just kid stuff, right? Kid stuff. And he, he needed to be disciplined and he was disciplined right at the moment where he needed that discipline. And then in his innocence and humility, because it's natural for little children, he, he came to his daddy and came close to him to be reassured that everything was okay. The discipline's over. Daddy's not angry anymore. Daddy says, so you'll remember to do that. You know, yes, daddy, yes, and I love you, daddy, and I love you too. And this is what we need to do with our daddy. Not yell and scream and call him names. We need to draw near to him. And then of course, he remained silent during this time, he contemplated his situation and he searched for meaning. Many times we only search for a way out. We only search for the pain to stop. We only search for the illness to go away, but we rarely search for meaning. Eventually he developed, we're talking about Job, developed a life-threatening illness. And then he lost the support of his wife. And then he was condemned by his friends as a sinner who had brought all of this misery upon himself. 
These additional burdens led Job to the last two steps in the believer's journey through the experience of grief and dying. Step number four, enlightenment. For nearly 40 chapters in an ongoing dialogue with his friends, we watch Job as he comes to grips with not simply the reality and meaning of his suffering, but the truth that stands behind not only his suffering, but the suffering of all men. Job learns that his experience is worth it if it reveals more perfectly the God that he believes in. In other words, if, if your suffering serves to give you a glimpse of God Almighty, then it is a small matter and any complaining was foolish and sinful in comparison to what has been discovered and what has been given to you. Enlightenment, especially the enlightenment that enables us to see God more clearly is of more value than what we have lost, whatever that is, however we suffer. Job learned that life as well as death is in God's hands and the painful experience of it is justified if it leads us face to face with God, even if it's just for a moment, that one moment is worth it, makes it worth it. I've said to some of my closer friends that my own experience in being ill and you know, the last year I have been ill with no understanding of what has caused the illness until just recently. And someone said to me, you know, that was terrible. The, you know, uh, the thought uh, crossed my mind. You, you, you can have a thought that crosses your mind without seizing it and holding it. The thought that crossed my mind that I did not seize and hold on to was you're wasting your life. There's a, you, you, here's a whole year of wasted life. And I know that that thought did not come from God. That was the evil one. And I remember in my prayer and in my own enlightenment, the, one of the things that I discovered uh, was the goodness of God. I can't explain to you how suffering and the type of suffering where you, you see no end to it, how that suffering in some way reveals the goodness of God. I can't explain how this gets you to that, but I can tell you that it's worth it. It was worth the suffering to learn the things that I learned in this last year. You know, non-believers best hope is to arrive at that point where they accept a new reality and they learn to cope with it. That reality being that people suffer and die and there's nothing that they can actually do about it except carry on as best they can. This is as good as it gets 
for the non-believer. Acceptance, That's, it doesn't get any better than acceptance. Suffering and death for believers, however, brings them face to face with the ultimate reality. And that is that there is a living God who gives life and controls death by his power. The ultimate end therefore is that death and dying strengthens faith and hope and loosens its grip of fear and sorrow on our hearts. Only an enlightened person like Paul the apostle could write these words when facing death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Only an enlightened person could write such words. He had seen beyond suffering and death and had a glimpse of God's reality and it was worth all the suffering that he had endured. And then step number five, restoration. Restoration, Job chapter 42, 10 to 17. I won't read it, we know what happened at the end. In the last chapter, we learned that God heals Job, restores his family, his wealth, his position. Of course, this didn't change the fact that Job had suffered and lost children and prestige. His suffering was real. You see, God doesn't give us our old life back. He gives us a new life, a different life. My own life, is different than the life I had last year. Here on earth, it's a life that we can live and live with. Sometimes it's very different, sometimes it's harder, but for believers, it's always a life where God is more prominent than before. He is the reward for persevering through suffering, not good health. You may not have a parent or a child or a spouse or a loved one or health anymore, but you now have more of God to make up for it. And in the next world, the great promise for those who have experienced the enlightenment of suffering is that you will have all of him all of the time because after your death, you will leave behind everything that comes between you and him. Your body of sin, your need to survive, your many sorrows, your earthly treasures, you will have none of those things. And because of that, none of those things will interfere in your relationship with him. All of these will fall away as you are restored to the perfect relationship with God through Christ that you were originally designed to enjoy. And so Kubler-Ross explained how unbelievers face death because that's all she could see as an unbeliever. Job, however, describes how a believer responds to the death and dying around and in him. He mourns the loss. He draws closer to God. He refrains from sin. 
and note that in doing these things, God will then lead the believer into the final stages of the experience of death and dying, which, is, which are enlightenment, a fuller knowledge of God, and restoration, a deeper walk with God. It is within this cycle that we experience God's plan and purpose for our lives when things go terribly wrong. All of us will experience tragedy in our lives one way or another, and all of us will ultimately face our own demise. The only difference is that some will experience them as believers, and some will face these things as non-believers. We have no control over death, no control over dying, but we do decide how we will face these things. Will we face them as believers or as non-believers? As always, you have an opportunity to be counted as a believer this evening by confessing your faith in Jesus Christ and leaving your sinful lives behind, being baptized for all of your sins, the forgiveness of these, or if you've been unfaithful as a believer, of course, being restored to a faithful status with God once again. I finish with the invitation because it seems natural to invite everyone to be ready to face the inevitable death and dying that all of us must do so. But I so encourage all of us to face our suffering and then eventually our demise as believers. Because as believers, we see beyond this life into the next life and not simply an acceptance of this life only. All right, that's the end of the Job series for now anyways. Thank you very much for your attention.